Brexit, the British exit from the European Union. Until COVID-19 struck, it dominated our headlines, TV screens and radio broadcasts. Brexit means Brexit. Brexit means breakfast. Brexit. Think about Brexit. What's, what's that? Brexit is bothering both ends of the business spectrum. We must leave the EU. So it'll be harder to go on holidays. Yeah, I think so. Oh, I love my holidays. Yeah. yeah. The global pandemic has diverted our attention for the last few months, but the deadline for the end of the Brexit transition period is looming closer. And we still don't have much idea what's going to happen at the end of December. Will the UK still be in the single market? Will we have a customs union? Is Kent going to become a massive car park? Are supermarket shelves going to be empty? No one knows. A deal is still being struck, which means UK businesses have to be prepared for myriad potential outcomes. This mini-series for the London Business Hub is getting to the heart of the Brexit-related issues affecting small to medium-sized businesses. In each episode, we're going to be taking one specific issue, be that tariffs, the loss of skilled labour or food labelling, and try to see how businesses could be better prepared for whatever comes next. To make things easier, we've paired each London business with a relevant expert, and between us we'll try to bring a bit of understanding and clarity to the situation. Obviously, we don't have all the answers, as so much remains unknown, but in this podcast, we're going to do the best we can. My name's Nick Wallace. Thank you very much for listening. In this episode, we're tackling the T word. If we get a no deal, tariffs are going to be applied to imports and exports from the EU. This has the potential to be troublesome and time-consuming for all businesses, and smaller businesses are going to be hit the hardest. Wilda Haddad is project director at Dina Foods, the largest manufacturer of baklava in the EU. And delicious it is too. I'm going to chat to Wilda first and find out a bit more about her concerns. And then I'm going to bring in our expert for this episode, Ian Wright, chief executive of the Food and Drink Federation. This podcast was recorded at the end of August 2020. Let's get into it, shall we? Wilda, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a bit about the background of Dina Foods. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, well, the background to Dina Foods actually started in the 80s, believe it or not, when my father and my uncles were one of the founding members of a really famous Lebanese restaurant in Mayfair called Fakhreddin, and it could accommodate about 200 covers. And their vision for the restaurant was to be able to feed, you know, feed the masses, and it became a destination venue. People would, you know, literally fly into London on a, on a transit stop, eat in their restaurant and fly out again. And one of the key features of this restaurant was to produce hot, fresh bread. Um, you know, the traditional Lebanese bread, which is two-ply. It's a very uh, versatile bread, as well as all the delicious, savory products, which were um, made with much love and care by my late uncle. And, you know, these are very traditional recipes that have been handed down over the generations. And over the years, then, they branched out into a seafood restaurant in Knightsbridge, and by the early 90s, um, when they'd sold the first Lebanese restaurant, they wanted to be able to mass produce this amazing bread and savory products and sweets um, and be able to supply nationally and later in the years internationally. So that's when Dina Foods was born in 1992. Originally, they were based in a factory in Hackney in East London. And very quickly, they realized that they had outgrown that site and so they moved over to Park Royal in um, sort of northwest London. And in this area, where we have sort of three divisions. 
We have the bakery, which produces an array of flatbreads, both the Mediterranean and sort of ethnic, uh, Asian ethnic breads. And we have the savory kitchen, um, where we produce so many different delicious Lebanese uh, products, from hummus to kibbeh to vine leaves. And then we have our confectionery section. Um, we're accredited with being probably the largest but lower manufacturers in Europe. You actually run a sweetie factory, which is you, almost every person's dream. <laughs> yes, you should smell it, Nick. It's amazing. As soon as you park the car in the area, this, this amazing smell of sugar and baked phyllo pastry sort of hits you. Um, so you, you have a, a, a £10 million turnover, you've got 150 employees, and you export some of your products abroad. That's correct, yes. That's all correct. And uh, I know that you employ a lot of uh, EU nationals, but I think what we're going to focus on is actually the tariffs on... Uh, exporting your products and the and the raw ingredients that are going to um, that you use in them also uh, potentially talking about uh, supply chain issues and compliance where are you on uh, on food tariffs understanding them what's going to be expected of you and your supply chain well look we're, we're trying to approach this in a very positive way it is what it is at the end of the day and as I said a large part of our business is focused on the export over to the EU market Obviously, like, like many other businesses and individuals, um, it's continuously sort of moving feet. We've had a lot of uncertainty. So when we've diverted some attention to it, and then again, it's you know, put on hold, we sort of come off the pedals a bit, we take a bit of a break. And now, obviously, we're all working towards the 31st of December. So we've done some work. Okay, good. <laughs> good, good to know you've done your homework. Um, but in terms of the product that you supply, it's obviously perishable, and you uh, obviously, I wouldn't imagine have massive margins on the the individual items that you're selling. So when you're looking to sell into the EU, where obviously there are transportation uh, costs, you have to remain competitive with those people who are manufacturing within the EU. And you're now getting to the point, I would have thought, where you're looking to potentially renew orders going into 2021. Can you give me some idea of what your sales team are telling you about what they are how they are able to price things when they're not entirely sure what the tariffs might be. Well, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, Nick. It's, it's not, um, it's not, it hasn't been easy, you know. And um, like you said, we are in the process of renewing contracts. And to be honest with you, we haven't been able to factor in the tariffs because we don't know what they are at this stage. And we need to remain competitive with the EU sort of, with our EU counterparts, let's say. So it's put us on a slight back foot, to be honest with you. How do you actually deal with that? How do you how do you price something when you don't know whether you can, excuse the pun, bake in the, the tariffs? Because you don't know what they are. No, we don't know. We haven't been able to factor in, and that's that's a sad reality of it. You know, And also, it's a bit of like a Dutch auction going on sometimes. So, you know, customers might be saying, oh, you know, well, so-and-so has given me this price, and, you know, we think we want this contract. So... You know, you have to do what you have to do and go in for the for the best price that we can give at the end of the day. I've got you. So to help us try and solve this problem, let's bring in Ian Wright, Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation. Welcome, Ian. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hello, hello. Um, now, before we go to the specifics of uh, what Wilder was talking about just a moment ago, um, one thing that I think might be helpful to the casual listeners to just get an understanding of how tightly regularised, for obvious reasons, the food and drink industry is the standards have to be high they have to be maintained compliance is hugely important across the board isn't it yes essentially the uk operates on what is called the precautionary principle 
that is the one that uh, we take precautions in advance of people. Uh, we go, I think the best way of putting it is we bend over backwards to take precautions with food safety, whereas the Americans would say, I think, and this is a bit shorthand, they take a risk-based approach, that they assess the risk and, and legislate or regulate accordingly. Thank you very much for that overview. Let's get down to the brass tacks that, that food producers in this country um, may be worried about, expressed by Wilder earlier. How can they set a price for the goods that they're trying to sell into the EU when they have no idea what tariffs might be set on them? Can you, can you offer any pointers, guidance or comfort to Wilder and her sales team about uh, how, how they're going to be able to cut deals with Dina Foods in Europe in the future? Uh, well, the simple answer to that is no. Um, but I, I can be helpful in, in directional terms. I, I mean, essentially, the question of tariffs is almost always a yes-no. So when tariffs are applied, it is rarely the case that it remains economically viable, depending on the level of the tariff, obviously, but it rarely remains economically viable. P- p- colleagues who, who have tariffs imposed have to decide whether they will or won't sell, whether they will or won't buy, whether they will or won't strike a price. The tariff regime at the moment is uncertain. If I had to guess, I would say that we will have a no tariff uh, agreement with the EU. I think that will happen. Uh, I would put the percentage likelihood of that at about 60-40 in favour of a deal. Um, The rest of the deal is not massively exciting, but it's, it's better probably better than the alternative. The difficulty with the with the current uncertainty is that there are two sets of uncertainty. There's uncertainty about tariffs. Will they be there or won't they be there? But also, what is the level of friction about bringing product into the UK? Yes, I mean, one of the things is the fact that we are dealing with perishable goods and deadlines in which those goods need to be reaching their EU destinations. And um, I'm just mindful about this... Um, the possibility of delays being experienced on their way out of the UK because of this added layer of bureaucracy they need to go through and the searches and everything else. And we've been hearing rumours that these car parks are being served, these lorry car parks in Kent. And I just wanted to understand from Ian whether he's aware of these car parks, whether you know he knows anything about sort of the processing times for the goods to leave the UK. Are there any targets like that, Ian? Well, uh, those arrangements are currently being put in place. Has the government actually sort of guaranteed or set any targets for uh, making sure that the goods do leave the country in good time? Not yet, although there are all sorts of assurances. But there is a real problem here. So you will have read and heard a whole lot about Operation Brock, which is the the way in which traffic is going to be managed in Kent. Uh, And there are going to be fairly major changes if you're moving freight through Kent in the next few months. You're going to need a, a permit to do it Uh, into the EU and a permit to do it locally and if you haven't got those permits you won't be allowed to move around Kent as I understand it so that's one attempt to keep the the food flowing a lot of people have said well surely the food has flowed very very uh, effectively over the last five months since Covid-19 since the lockdown won't that mean and the fact that the government is really following the no deal uh, preparations for from last year, won't that mean it'll all be all right on the night? And the answer to that is no, it doesn't mean that. It may still all be all right on the night. But the truth is that that this system is different. We now, previously, we were uh, expecting no deal in a situation where we didn't know what that meant. 
Now we have a pretty clear idea of what no deal means, tariffs, and all sorts of checks on the on the safety of the product as it goes into the EU, possibly on this side of the channel to make those things happen quicker. But what in the up in the in summary, what this is going to mean, as as was said just now, is we're going to have increased cost because there's bureaucracy, and increased delay because there are checks. And in both cases, those things weren't there or won't aren't there on the thirty first of December at eleven o'clock but will be there on the 31st of December at 23.01. And although they may take time to implement, and my guess is that although there won't be a, a formal transition period, I think a lot of these different bits of the, of, the, of the jigsaw will come into place at different times. The fact is that, that this is what is meant when we talk about more friction. More friction equals more cost equals more delay, and sometimes... That delay both ways into the EU, into the UK, will mean that availability of products is affected as well. You're painting a scenario whereby someone like Wilder or Wilder's company, Dina Foods, could be cutting a deal with a European client, not knowing whether or not there are going to be tariffs slapped on top of it. So they've got no idea whether or not it's going to be profitable. And come January the 5th and 6th, when the product is due to arrive, the client turns around and says, where is it? And, and Wilder has to say, well, I'm sorry, it's stuck on a lorry in Kent. The way you're describing it, that, that something like that could happen if, if, the, if the government and, and the EU doesn't come to a very clear agreement about the way things are going to have to be processed. Well, it could happen, but I think there are a couple of reasons why you would expect that it, at least part of that won't happen. Uh, I think we'll see a cut-off date so if there isn't an agreement, uh, a free trade agreement, uh, agreed really by the middle of October, it won't happen because the agreement itself has to be approved through the European Union and in Parliament. So there are, there's a sort of delay, there's a post-agreement delay uh, that has to be built in. The second thing is that once that's happened, you will know whether you have or haven't got tariffs and you'll know how much they are. So you'll have something like two months at least and probably longer to uh, factor in whether you can deal with those. On the question of of delays, I think there are some of my members uh, and some really quite big, you know, global food businesses who are choosing not to ship either from the UK to the EU or from the EU to the UK in the first three or four weeks of 2021. So what they will do is they'll build up stocks of their product on both sides of the channel so that they, they can assess the situation and start moving goods when, when it's clear what sort of timescales have been added to their normal uh, movements. That's much more difficult for Wilder because it, you, you know, she's running a smaller business, but she's also running a business with perishable food. But at least it does indicate to you some of the concerns that um, many big food companies have. On the other hand, there is every reason to believe that the government, I mean, I'm constantly talking to the government about this, and I know many other representative groups are, and they're very well aware that if this doesn't work, they will get a large part of the blame. And if you look at uh, if you look at the current row going on about schools and A levels and GCSEs, and the and the speed with which the government is having to react, imagine that sort of row projected onto the availability of food, and the future of businesses involved in that marketplace 
on both sides of the EU uh, magnified a few dozen times. And you can imagine that the government be very, very anxious to get these arrangements clear very soon in order to avoid that. Sorry, I just wanted to know if I could ask a question, actually, just leading on from Do that. Do but, <laughs> but I, you know, Ian, are the food trade sort of representatives, are they lobbying government at all on behalf of businesses like ourselves for a free trade agreement? I'm doing it. Brilliant. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, our, our touchstone for the deal that will emerge is that it's as close as possible to the situation we have now. And as I said earlier, the more friction, the less good the deal. I'd like to spend a couple of minutes before we finish on another issue which Wilda has told me she's got on her mind, mineral oil hydrocarbons. They're used as a lubricant in the food industry and can be in everything from packaging to raw ingredients. But some EU buyers have a problem with them and want them to be removed from every element of the supply chain at some cost, I presume, Wilda. How has this request impacted you? In how it translates for us in reality um, is as follows. We have to go through a testing procedure of every single raw material and its packaging, as well as all the approved lubricants that are used in our machinery to evaluate which of them, if any, have these hydrocarbon substances within them. So when it arose with one client, because we didn't have that facility in the UK after making our inquiries, we had to send those goods abroad to our client, who then tested the materials and came back to us with results. Obviously, the, the invoices are then passed on to us, <laughs> and they don't come cheap. <laughs> um, uh, but at least you still get to keep the client, I guess. Yes, yes, it was. But however, that wasn't factored into our costings when we we went for the tender. So that's that's a slight sort of downfall for us. Now, the obstacle we found in the UK, and this is something Ian might be able to help us with, is we couldn't find a UK tester and the one that we did eventually find had to almost subcontracted and we, I didn't explore with them whether that was what that was being subcontracted to somewhere in Europe essentially or whether it was a UK based um, testing facility but again the sample it was per sample we were quoted about 360 pounds per sample with a 20-day turnaround time for the testing so in real terms it means for me I suppose Will I be able to have the products tested in the UK if I still want to be able to supply my products to clients in the European Union after 31st of December? And um, will the cost be hopefully slightly more competitive than the ones we've already been quoted? What are your thoughts on that, Ian? Well, it's a really good question. Um, I think that, oh, this is kind of slightly a fudgy answer. Uh, over time, I'm pretty and really quite quickly, I would expect that that because so many businesses will be doing business with uh, the EU uh, at all sorts of different levels and in all sorts of different sectors, and because it's inevitable that UK and EU regulation will uh, diverge to some degree, I think there is inevitably also the likelihood that UK providers will spring up to ensure that, that, that businesses like Wilders can test stuff here uh, rather than have to go to the EU. There'll be a time lag, I would guess, although and, and my worry would be that COVID-19 might have made some businesses which would have been eager to seize this. It might have in some way impacted their, their business plans that mean they're more cautious about this. 
But I do think that that sort of service will be available quite quickly. Does that bring you much comfort, Wilda? I mean, it's reassuring. Um, One of the things I'm mindful of is that the EFSA has sort of given guidance on this. They haven't said you must exclude it from your products. And then individual clients in different countries are setting their own parameters on it. So there isn't one consistent line. And so our line has been, well, the UK hasn't said anything about this other than, obviously, I'm mindful that we have to abide by the EU regulations in any event, you know, especially as we're supplying into those countries. But um, it's sort of, it's guidance, it's not law as yet. And I just wanted to understand whether, you know, what is the UK's position on this? Do we, do we have an idea of where they're going with these mineral oil hydrocarbons? Well, I don't, I can't answer the specific question, but I do know that the, that the FSA and the European Food Standards Authority are going to keep very, very close. And indeed, I think they'll probably eventually have observer status with each other. Because as I say, they're all facing the same science and the same arguments over the science and the same consumer trends. So I don't think that that much will change about the way in which these decisions are taken. Um, But it's clearly going to be the case that, that all UK food companies who want to do business with the EU could end up having two sets of products. They could end up with a set of products that they sell in, in the United Kingdom, and or rather in Great Britain, and a set of products that they sell in the EU plus Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland will be, for all practical purposes, part of the EU. So that will apply to the regulatory composition of products, and I wouldn't imagine that would diverge too much too soon, but you never know. But also it will apply to the labelling and some of the other issues about what you can and can't say on the product. So, you know, this is a choice that was made for better or worse in the referendum. You mentioned, Ian, that we might have to produce different packaging for different countries. So for UK versus EU countries, for example. Do you know if someone is taking um, under their own label over in, let's say, Spain or France or wherever, Will they have to say on it that this is a product made in the UK, whereas currently they say, you know, you get in touch with this company in Spain, for example, to find out more. Will that have to change as a result of our departure on the 31st of December? Yes, there are two different parts to that answer. Sorry to be complicated again. Uh, The first is that the health mark will change. So we will move to a GB health mark, um, and it's extremely complicated, but it will be a different health mark from the beginning of next year and there'll be a different mark for Northern Ireland. Um, and the second one is that you will, if you're import, and you, I'm sure you've got this already, you will, if you're importing into the EU, have to have an address at which you can be contacted by EU consumers within the EU. Um, and that's essentially the role of the customs agent or can be the role of the customs agent or some other representative. So yes, that is an extra, yet another one of these uh, extra layers of friction and therefore cost and delay. Right, more, more work for us, but it's all good. We can, we can rise to the challenge. <laughs> I'm sure Dina Foods has been around a while innovating and succeeding, so I'm sure you've got many more years of it to come. Wilder, how is your contingency planning? Because it's, it, it seems to me that you're a, a guinea pig in a, in, a, in a grand experiment not of your own making. And the worst case scenario is that you, you, you stop selling into the EU because it's just too expensive or too difficult to do so. How much of a disaster would something like that be for your company? Oh, it'd be a huge hit for us. I mean, I couldn't even begin to measure. But um, as I said, we are sort of the largest but lower manufacturers 
in the EU because of our relationships with certain clients and who we supply to. And um, I think if we were to stop selling into those countries, one, we we sort of lose that label effectively, but two, it would t- we'd take a huge hit as a result. And, and going back to Ian, what you were saying about the, the politicians not wanting headlines like Dina Food saying, right, we're not doing this because you're, you're not making it viable for us to do so. That that presumably is very, very high on their list of priorities, making sure that, that, that medium to small size companies, as well as the bigger brands, can, can get into Europe and, and do so while still being able to make money. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and there are two other factors. So the politicians are worried about disruption here. And they're also worried about a, a lack of choice here. So the same arguments are going on, of course, or same concerns are being expressed on the other side of the channel. And those who may not have have um, establishments here, but who export into the UK, will be putting pressure on the EU to be as um, as constructive as possible in the remaining parts of the negotiations, so that they can continue to sell their products into the 66 million consumers in the UK. And it's worth remembering that we probably uh, even, you know, we're the second or third largest market in the EU or was in the EU anyway, and we're the most vibrant food market. Our, our food and drink market is by far the most innovative and by far the one with the widest possible choice, largely driven by our remarkable supermarkets um, the, in, the, in the EU. So it's a dynamic place that European businesses uh, want, in, they do want to participate here, and so they'll be putting the pressure on as well. So as well as pressure from small businesses, there's pressure from UK consumers and pressure from EU businesses on the EU. So there are there are cards to play yet in this argument. Um, but it is undoubtedly incredibly frustrating for our members and for businesses like Wilders. And and it's it's a really difficult time. Uh, to be doing this straight after the COVID, well, while we're still in the COVID nineteen crisis, it's it's this is this is a challenging period. Thanks very much indeed, Wilder Haddad, Assistant General Manager and Project Director of Dina Foods, and thanks very much indeed to Ian Wright, the Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation. For more business support on leaving the EU single market and customs union, visit businesshub.london. This podcast was commissioned by West London Business for the London Business Hub and was produced by Folder Media.